Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Welcome to the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor of Pitchfork. Today, we're talking about Pitchfork's Album of the Year, which was also the first album in a decade to receive a perfect 10 from the site. That is, of course, Fiona Apple's incredible Fetch the Bolt Cutters. I've waited many years. Every print I left upon the track has led me here. To talk about the album, why it succeeded, how it was made, and the legacy of the Pitchfork 10, I'm joined by Pitchfork's features editor, Ryan Domble, and contributing editor, Jen Pelly. Hello. How's it going? So Jen wrote the review of the album and has also spent nearly five months chatting with Fiona for a pair of features this year. And Ryan is a longtime editor at Pitchfork who worked with Jen on those stories. And he coincidentally also wrote the site's last review to get a 10. And that was Kanye's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. So Ryan, you've been at Pitchfork for a very long time, and even still, there have been almost no 10s given out during your tenure. And maybe this is obvious, but for those who may not know, when we're talking about a 10, we're really talking about the highest possible score, a perfect album in Pitchfork's mind. They're incredibly rare and reserved for albums that we believe are singular and groundbreaking. They're sonically innovative and forward-thinking. The caliber of songwriting on the album is extremely strong, and they kind of uniquely speak to or capture a particular moment in history. Actually, Ryan, maybe you could give us a quick rundown of, let's say, the more contemporary albums that have gotten a Pitchfork 10. Yeah, absolutely. Even though I've been at Pitchfork for around 12 years, I've only been here for two tens. Which is kind of shocking. Yeah, most of them happened before I was on staff at the site. And that is partly because in 1996, Pitchfork was a very much smaller endeavor than what it is now. I feel like the 10, I guess, as we know it, came into effect in 2000 with Radiohead's Kid A, which is a famous slash infamous review, depending on who you talk to, because it is just extremely over the top uh, in every sense of the phrase. Since Kid A, there have been four other tens, and you will know us by The Trail of Dead, which is a Austin, Texas band, I believe, their album Source Tags and Codes. Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, both of those were 2002. And then Kanye, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Gossip. 
gossip, nigga, just stop it. Everybody know I'm a motherfucking monster. I'ma need to see your fucking hands at the concert. I'ma need to see your fucking hands at the concert. And Fiona Apple fetched the bolt cutters uh, this year. So those are the only ones that got the rarefied 10 in the 21st century. Kind of astonishing if you think about it. I feel like there are some very clear absent 10s in that mix. There's a ton. (laughs) There's many albums that are 10s that have come out in the last 20 years, in my opinion. So yeah, it's, it's a tough thing to pull the trigger on, but... Very exciting when it does happen, such as this year, first time in a decade. You know, I'm honestly curious for you, Pooja, like for the Fiona record, what was the process behind actually giving that a 10 this year? Yeah, I think to give some more context to it, it came out in mid to late April. When we got a copy of the album, it was being like very selectively and secretly shared among the staff with certain folks who we thought might have a deep interest in Fiona or might have like a strong feeling or perspective about her. That small set of people were extremely excited about it. And I mean, I remember at the time us talking with our then social media editor about how it was a likely contender for album of the year before even talking about score. But we knew that it was going to be very much up there. But when you start framing a an album as possibly being album of the year, you start kind of subconsciously weighing it against its fellow kind of contemporarily high scores. Um, in this case, for last year, Lana Del Rey and Twigs, which were both in the nines. Also, the set of albums from Big Thief, which were both in the nines. And all of those are great albums, but Fiona Apple felt like viscerally more stirring. And I think that felt true to everyone who was intimately involved with talking about the album at the time. We all immediately kind of got excited about the prospect of giving the first 10 in a very long time. Jen, I know that you simultaneously, before you had gotten the album, were very excited about the release. I'm curious what your thoughts were about where that would land because you wrote the Lana Del Rey review last year, which was also our highest scoring album of the year. It's really hard for me to compare Fiona Apple to other contemporary artists. Like, I think she's just kind of like on another level, um, like another stratosphere of music or something. I don't think it's really surprising that I would give a Fiona Apple record a 10. Like, I would give a 10 to The Idler Real and also to One the Pawn. So I, I was more surprised that everyone agreed with me, to be honest. I do think that in the context of albums, like the kind of other albums that we would consider to be modern classics of the past few years, it fully earns a 10 score. I think, yeah, it was more surprising to me that everyone was in agreement with that. We didn't tell you that it was a 10 as you were writing the review, right? I didn't know what score it was going to officially get until like after I had filed the piece and after it had been edited and set up on the site and everything. I knew that if there was a chance of it being a 10, I would have to write it as a 10 and make the case for it and kind of persuasively make my argument that this record has all the weight of something that can hold that number. 
And it does. You felt like we were all aligned. You didn't have to make a case for it. I thought so. I, I didn't feel like they're, at least from from my perspective, they're, you know, there's always back and forth on the things that you're actually writing in the piece. I wasn't really involved with the conversations about the score, but I, I had the confidence that everyone felt as strongly as I did based on conversations I had had here and there. The cultural weight of the record felt so undeniable to me. And I think it is to most people. Like something I remember um, from all of the years that I spent working in as an editor in the Pitchfork review section is that people sometimes think that an album is getting like an extra point because of a lyric on a record, or maybe it lost a point because of one another weaker song here on the second half of the album. But I think it's kind of, it's not as like scientific as that or not as like calculated as that. And that a record like Fetch the Bolt Cutters, like all of the parts, like you could think of it in a more holistic way too. Obviously the songwriting is a huge part of it. I mean, she remade the way she was making music. That's like incredibly significant, I think. She completely revamps the way she's telling stories. There's just, when you start... Getting into it granularly, there's no shortage of reasons why this record deserves like the fullest score it could receive. Ryan, you wrote the last 10 previous to this 10 years ago, uh, which was Kanye's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Was the process similar there? Do you remember that? Uh, Yeah, I remember it. And I, yeah, I think the process was pretty similar in that there was a lot of talk about it leading up to it. It was a little bit different because for the Kanye record, he had put out a lot of singles beforehand and he had put out a lot of other free songs. He was doing this thing called Good Fridays, which he was putting out a free song a week leading up to the album. So there was just a tremendous amount of excitement leading up to it. So there was, was just a lot of momentum going for him at that moment. Runaway had come out, Power, Monster, all songs that were individually tens, like if you if you were to rate them. So yeah, that built up to this to this thing that I was like, all right, are, are we going to do this? I was in a similar position as Jen. I didn't really know if it was actually going to get a 10. I, I knew that was on the table, but... So yeah, I wrote it as if it would. Part of it is kind of making your case there because, you know, you're writing this for the editors and the editors are the ones who essentially decide. So if you can convince them, that's a good sign that like you can convince everybody else. So yeah, and it was exciting when it came out and it was a 10. <laughs> it was fun. Having been around for both do you feel like the qualifications have changed at all? And do you think that the impact has lasted? Is My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy still a 10 for you personally? It's definitely still a 10 for me. Um, I think the album has aged well. I think it's lasted. You know, it just turned 10. It just had its 10th anniversary and there's a lot of talk about it. It still feels immense. And at this point, a lot of people really soundtracked moments, like big moments in their lives, which is cool. So so yeah, you're always going to have that connection 
And I absolutely stand by it. And as far as like whether a 10 has changed, what a 10 means has changed, I don't think so. I mean, there's not a lot to go on. The diagram is just like one dot here and then like one dot like 10 years later. So like we haven't been able to catalog the ups and downs, but both albums share some similarities in as far as it's an artist that Pitchfork liked before you know, as a history of liking, doing something exceptional, taking a lot of what we love about them originally and kind of blowing that up into something even better. Um, so I think they have that in common. And I thought it was interesting. There's this Tumblr famous <laughs> interview at this point that Kanye and Fiona, they did an interview with each other uh, for Interview Magazine in 2005 there's a copy of it that lives on tumblr currently honestly to be a fly on the wall of that room i know so in that interview they 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 talk about how they're really big fans of each other and kanye mentions that he worked with john bryan who's a producer who worked with fiona apple on uh, her album when the pawn anyway kanye wants to work with him because he had worked with Fiona and Kanye really liked the work that they had done together. And he actually told Fiona that he wanted to work with John Bryan so he could be the rap version of you, which is just a weird thing to say, but kind of cool <laughs> um, <laughs> in hindsight. So yeah, it's weird to think that these two people, you know, that the last two tens also were huge fans of each other, at least at one point. <laughs> One more like nuts and bolts thing that I think pertains to tens is how long we as a staff or like the editors at least have to listen to the album before it comes out because most big records in the past 10 years, I guess, even we don't get to hear them before they are released, a lot of them at least. So, you know, if an album comes out and we're putting the review up, three days later, it's just really difficult to say this is one of the greatest albums of all time after listening to it for two days. Like, that's just very hard to do. We've talked about how having more time with the album makes you feel differently with it and makes you come around to it. How do you feel like the album is going to age? I know when it came out this year, it felt like the experiences of people in the year, you know, like clanging around a house and wanting to break free. Do you feel like that same kind of gut punch will land 10 years from now? And also, do you think that the way that she recorded this album will affect how other people record albums? I think it'll age impeccably. (laughs) Um, Because one thing, another thing that it does Uh, have in common with these other records is they're impossible to reproduce. There's no, the you know, since they're formula breaking by design, that means that you can't copy it, which also helps its longevity because let's take someone like Drake, right? Like Take Care, great album, maybe should have been a 10 when it came out. I be yelling now, money over everything, money on my mind. Well, that style is copied a lot. So maybe that has taken it down a little bit. I think there's examples like that. But for something like this, no one 
you know, I can't see just to pick a example out of the blue. I can't see like Maggie Rogers being like, you know what? Like I'm going to make my fetch the bolt cutters. Like it's never going to happen for her or anyone. It's interesting to me though, because I feel like that is what's so unique about the influence of someone like Fiona is I don't think she inspires people to try to sound like her. She has always inspired people to just write deeper and like to be stronger writers. I'm wondering if both of you could share your favorite songs or your favorite moments from the album. My favorite moment on the album is definitely the title track. I feel like I'll never forget the experience and the feeling of hearing that song for the first time. And it just seemed so cracked open and... I really appreciated the minimalism of that song, especially for a song that is about the idea of kind of liberating yourself and and getting yourself out of whatever it is you feel stuck in. I hadn't found my own voice yet, so all I could hear was the noise that people make when they don't know shit, but I didn't know that yet. I also really love the part of that song when... She repeats throughout the song, whatever happens, whatever happens. I think that is a really beautiful expression of the fact that like when you step out of your comfort zone or free yourself from whatever it is you've been stuck in, you can't predict what's going to happen and maybe it will hurt and maybe it will be painful, but it's worth it to get yourself out. She told me that when she wrote Fetch the Bolt Cutters and Newspaper, she didn't have any music or a melody. She was just writing lyrics kind of stream of conscious to the rhythms that she had. She had these percussion tracks and she was writing lyrics that fit with the rhythms. But then she decided after to put some chords into Fetch the Bolt Cutters and she went with C-A-G-E-D, Caged. And Ryan, what about for you? What are your favorite parts of the album? This really is one of those albums, every time you listen to it, you're going to have a different favorite moment, or at least you're going to, something new is going to peek out at you. At the very beginning of the album, something I never really thought about that much is how it starts off with this really chintzy drum beat that sounds like, the best way I can explain it is to say that it sounds like something you'd hear at Chuck E. Cheese, like coming out of that band like that like an animatronic band and you're just like what is happening and then you know on a dime it hits into these you know incredibly like grand piano chords that sound like you are in you know Carnegie Hall just that kind of juxtaposition like immediately within the first what, 10 seconds of the album really it like throws you off balance. Like you automatically are kind of unmoored while listening. And I feel like that's the best way to experience this album. There's not a lot of places where you're going to find your footing, like in, a, in an exciting way. Just that first 10 seconds is such a great start. The other song that stuck out to me as of late is uh, the song Under the Table. Pick me under the table all you want. This is one of the funnier songs on the album. At the same time, it's based in some anger, as many Fiona's Apple songs are. Basically, the song is based on the time that she went to a very fancy music industry dinner. Even though she's been famous for 25 years or so, 
music industry dinner is probably the last place that she would ever want to be. So the song is basically about how she hated going to this dinner. I told you I didn't want to go to this dinner. At this dinner, her way of saying that she didn't want to be there was to ask all these fancy music industry types some uncomfortable questions that you're not supposed to ask in polite society. And her date didn't want her to do that. If you get me to go and I open my mouth to the fucking mutton that they're talking about, you could pout, but don't you, don't you, don't you, don't you, don't you shush me, take me under the table all you want. And then she lets loose this line where she says, I would beg to disagree, but begging disagrees with me. Which is one of these lines that I literally Googled because I'm like, someone must have said this before. It's just, it's just too perfect of a line. Like at this point in pop music, the history of pop music, there aren't many lines, new lines like that, that come out where I'm like, this must have existed already. It just seems so clear and perfect. It's a perfect line. And I feel like it's a perfect summation of so much of her appeal and attitude toward the world. It's fun, smart, it's an incredible moment on the album. For me, the song that really stands out is For Her. And it opens with this patty cake-like playground rhyme. It has this chant-like element to it that really reminds me of the sort of thing that young schoolgirls would sing. Look at how feathered his cocks are. See how seamless his frocks are. Often those rhymes were really disguising quite dark things like Ring Around the Rosie was about the plague, but they were delivered with these kind of like pep squad energy. And I think it's so smart that she opens the song with that before going into another really cheery, iconic hat tip to women when she moves into Debbie Reynolds' opening of Singing in the Rain. Well, good morning before immediately segueing into a pretty dark lyric about a woman who is addressing someone who raped her. Good morning. You raped me in the same bed. Your daughter was born in. Good morning. That she's able to stack these things together in this really catchy, bright-eyed, subversive way feels like she's connecting women through time via these really subtle, invisible elements and showing that women put on a good front even when they're going through hell. And to me, that has this kind of cosmic energy to it and, again, rubber stamps to me why she's a genius. Well, with that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear more from Jen about how Fiona approached this album and what she's learned over months of interviewing Fiona about her work. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
I have to light my Fiona candle. I actually have one. <laughs> Welcome back to the Pitchfork Review. We're here talking about Pitchfork's album of the year, which is Fiona Apple's Fetch the Bolt Cutters. And with me is Ryan Domble and Jen Pelly. Jen has written a ton about Fiona Apple for us this year and is going to be talking a little bit more about the album itself. Jen, you have your Fiona candle lit. I know that. You have multiples. I do have multiple Fiona candles. This one says the hermit and has a picture of her face. And it was a Christmas gift from my friend Pierre. Can you tell our listeners about your relationship with Fiona Apple's music? We are all big fans. I would go as far to say that you are the biggest fan of us all. I accept that placement in the the hierarchy of Fiona fans. Her music's been incredibly important to me since I was a teenager and it came into my life at a really crucial time, 15 years old, the extraordinary machine era. It was the era of free Fiona. It doesn't seem right to take information given that close range for the gag and the bind and the ammunition her music was so important to me and I was learning that there was this whole campaign of people who were fighting and protesting for her new album to come out. Fiona was my high school yearbook quote. I tried to make it this world is bullshit, but they wouldn't let me. So what I want to say is um, everybody out there that's watching, everybody that's watching this world, this world is bullshit. And you shouldn't model your life. Wait a second. You shouldn't model your life about what you think that we think is cool and what we're wearing and what we're saying and everything. Go with yourself. Go with yourself. So I made it go with yourself, which I think is a relevant sentiment to fetch the bolt cutters because I feel like Fiona has gone with herself more than ever before. Jen, what was it like to make contact with Fiona. This is one of those kind of meeting your idols moment. It was pretty surreal, I have to say. <laughs> I After I reviewed the album, there were so many great interviews with Fiona that came out this year, and I learned so much about her uh, life. But I felt like I still had a lot of questions about her music, and I and I always have. And particularly hearing Fetch the Bolt Cutters, I've, you know, it's there's so much to think about, so many questions to me anyway that we're like hovering over the record. So I decided to email her manager after I wrote the review to mention that I would love to interview her if she was considering doing other interviews. And then two months later, he got back in touch with me and said she was interested in talking about some stuff. It was pretty surreal. I don't usually get nervous for interviews because I've been doing this for so long, but uh, I was kind of like shaking like <laughs> before. So I think, she, but you know, I think it says so much. Were you on Zoom? It was FaceTime, but this is like hours leading up to it. I was like real nervous. And I think she is such a kind of like empathetic, sensitive, and kind of like emotionally attuned person that I have to imagine she knew that would be the case. And so she sent me a video of herself talking into her phone just to be like, this is Fiona. I just wanted to say hi. Like, I hope you're having a nice day. I'm excited to talk to you. I just, I was like, I know that this person is doing this because they want to make it be not awkward and um, flow more smoothly. And it felt like such a generous thing to do. So I was grateful for that. Yeah, it seems like both from uh, talking to you over the last couple of months, but also from some of the other interviews she did with The New Yorker and New York Mag, that she really develops a bond with people who are talking to her about her life or her work. And I'm just genuinely like as a 
a fan and also as an editor curious what that kind of back and forth was like. Like you mentioned that she was texting you. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I, I started thinking about this kind of in the context of the entire record. Because to me, I think there's this really like radical openness to Fetch the Bolt Cutters as an album in terms of like the way the music sounds cracked open and like the things she's singing about and the stories she's telling and the candor and the honesty of them. Some of the songs shocking. You're like, people don't usually say things like this in songs. Ladies, 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 take it easy. Wendy leaves me, please be my guest. Do whatever I might left in his kitchen cupboards. In the I feel like that kind of just extends to the way she interacts with people. She's a pretty open book. And I think she just, you know, she said, if you're trying to get to know someone, you should just be able to have an open line of communication and share things with them. And then you'll, you'll know them more. And so I think it kind of contributes to her wanting to make something human and real, whether that's for music or the connection she has with another person. I think part of why Fiona does that, I don't know this for a fact, but I would guess that part of it is, you know, she came up in the 90s before really the internet took its current shape. And it seems like, you know, based on Jen's interview, she is online, but perhaps not in a way that a lot of other people are, like maybe not as in tune with every meme or whatever that's happening on social media. So I think that allows her a distance to, to, yeah, to trust someone to tell her story. Whereas, you know, it is kind of the norm for artists, you know, current artists who are younger to feel that they can do that best themselves, which isn't always the case. It's interesting too, because I feel like I hadn't really thought about this much until till now, but so much of the way she carries herself in talking to a journalist, I think relates to the way she makes music, which is like, it's imperfect. It's imperfect, you know, like there's where it's it's redefining kind of like what perfection can be. Like we gave the album of a 10. And by being authentic, it means it's messy, you know? Exactly. Yeah. We did four interviews and they were, some of them were long, some of them were short and it's a lot to make sense of. (laughs) It's not like, it's not like she has the things that she wants to say, like packaged in in an easy, digestible way, but it feels really real. Jen, you wrote this really great piece for us where you found and interviewed the woman who is the namesake of the song Shamika. And the song itself is about Fiona when she was being bullied as a child in grade school. And the chorus describes this really heartening moment in that. It goes, Shamika said I had potential. Shamika said I had potential. And Fiona sings, she got through to me and I'll never see her again. She got through me and I'll never see her again. She got through to me and I'll never see her again. A really touching part of your reporting was that you actually found out that Shamika and Fiona have reconnected. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I the first time I interviewed Fiona, I had asked her, have you found Shamika or has Shamika found you or have you been in touch with the real Shamika? Because I knew... Well, I wanted to know, and I I knew that a lot of people wanted to know. I had seen people on Twitter saying, 
have we found Shamika yet? Um, I think there were a lot of questions hovering around that thought, like lingering, like, like what does that person think of the song and what, what does that mean for the song? Um, so I wanted to know. And at that point, she had not been in touch with Shamika. And so when we talked later in the summer, I think it was like mid-August, she told me, Shamika found me and my like, jaw dropped. I was not expecting her to say that. I was shocked. Um, immediately, I, you know, I was like, she was, she was telling me about them reconnecting and I, pr- pretty quickly, like dur- during that conversation, I was like, I think I should, you know, I would love to write an article about this aspect of the story. Then she told me, you know, and we had been, t- we talked about Shamika for maybe like 20 minutes or something. And then she told me, oh, by the way, also she's a rapper. <laughs> and I asked her to do a remix of my song. <laughs> and so it was like, the story was already wild before I found that out. And then it was like, there, there's this whole part two of the story. That was August, and so I texted Shamika. You know, she had gotten Shamika's permission to give me her phone number, and I texted her, and we kind of just went back and forth for at least two months, maybe a little bit over two months, and we didn't end up talking until October because they were working on their song and they wanted to finish their song before talking to me. But that was so rewarding to get to do, and I'm really grateful that I got to do it. It's such a moving piece of music because in addition to Shamika like introducing herself and responding to Fiona's song, there are a few moments where Fiona is singing and reflecting on each of their experiences at the school that they went to. They both had complicated, fraught histories at this school, which were very different. Shamika experienced racism at the school. Fiona dealt with bullies. And so they both have had nightmares about and dreams about the school for years. And so there's just so many layers to the story. Um, and as Fiona was explaining it to me in August, I knew like it was like this has to be a story of its own because there's just so much to there's so much to talk about within the context of this particular story. And I can completely understand why Shamika's words were so moving to Fiona when she was a kid, because she's such an uplifting person to talk to. I felt that from the few hours that I talked to her. After the story came out, she texted me and told me she was proud of me for telling such a complicated story. And I thought that was really sweet. She said in the piece, I love to speak life on people. And that seems to be a thousand percent true. Honestly, just reading the story, I felt like I could do something exciting <laughs> with my life. Or I don't know. It's like, it like inspired me just reading it. So no, it made me emotional. I teared up. I got a lot of really beautiful emails and messages from people who were like, I'm impacted by this. And I don't really know what else to say other than that. I'm impacted by it, which I thought was really sweet. Yeah, I think that part of why the Shamika story also landed or felt like kind of so moving is that Fiona still kind of feels like an enigma to a lot of people, even though she's this cultural icon. She doesn't readily give out interviews. She doesn't often appear in public. And I'm wondering if you think that the kind of self-isolation that defined this past year helped her open up and like helped her be more forthcoming than she would have been under, you know, a regular album tour cycle and promoting this thing. 
I'm not sure. It seems like her day-to-day life has not been that much different this year than it usually is. And she rarely leaves her house to begin with. One thing she did tell me though, in terms of like how she has been able to kind of open up more over the past few years, whether that's like, like she assembled her own band for this record. And even though she made the album, she is the co-producer of it and made it in a very kind of like independent kind of um, self-contained way. She hoped she did, she was actively collaborating with her bandmates in a way that is really interesting to me. She talked to me about the fact that she has been able to collaborate more actively with people on music and kind of open herself up is because she has gained a certain level of confidence in herself over the past few years. Part of that from quitting drinking and part of that from her bandmates who she's developed these really intense, like familial relationships with, and also um, from the relationship with her roommate slash best friend Zelda, who seems like such an incredible friend. Also in Jen's interview with Fiona, there's another legend who apparently gave her a confidence boost. I don't know if you want to tell that story. Oh, yeah. One thing that she did that she left her house to do before the pandemic was she left her house to play on the Bob Dylan album that came out this year. And she told me that when Blake Mills asked her to come play on the Bob Dylan album, she was really nervous because she doesn't usually do things like that. Bob Dylan knew she was nervous and he told her, you're not here to be perfect, you're here to be you. I said the soul of a nation will turn away. And it's beginning to go into a slow decay. And she said that hearing that from Bob Dylan was like incredibly important to her at the beginning of this year, she knew her album was going to be coming out and she felt a little, um, like she said, she felt like she kind of needed that knowing how her record was full of what might be considered imperfections or, or messiness or, um, just like unconventional style of playing. She really emphasized how important it was for her to hear that from him in February. It has been a long time since her last album. And I'm wondering if, Jen, you can talk a little bit about the idler wheel to now, just the kind of evolution of Fiona that you've seen and heard and even anything you've gleaned from talking to her. Well, there were eight years in between. Eight long years. Those eight years are such an intentional like part of her process. Like She was very clear that the slowness and the slow pace is like essential to the way she works, the way she kind of filters things, you know, information and life through herself and turns it into her art is like a process that can't really be like sped up. And I think that is really inspiring and admirable. Um, In that time, her dog, Janet, passed away. Um, She got sober and she, she formed her band. How long did it take her to make Fetch the Bolt Cutters? I Want You to Love Me was, she was playing that on, when she was touring either, either Wheel. So that song had been around, I believe it was around 2015 or 2016 that she kind of started having the sessions for the album at her house with the bandmates that she assembled. But she also apparently, this is based on your interviews, so she also apparently wrote the title track pretty quickly, right? Like at the end of the, like 
last year or something? Yeah, she after the record was fit, like they thought it was finished and it was being mixed. It was only then that she wrote the title track and newspaper. And she spent a couple of weeks working on those songs, but they were very like last minute additions. And it, it's, I think it's interesting though, because those songs say so much and you know, she felt like she still had things she wanted to say and she needed to. There's this kind of, there's this quote from Fiona that she said in an interview that if you've just made something, you should feel like there's nothing left in you. And I always think of that. I don't, I'm not sure if she would subscribe to that logic today, but in a way it's like, fetch the bolt cutters, the song and newspaper. It seems like someone kind of being like, what else is left in me? Um, what else do I have left to say? Like and making sure you said everything you had to say. Can I ask, as a kind of student of her body of work and a fan, what was the most revealing or surprising thing that you learned from her? In terms of like the way she makes art, I was really shocked like when we first started talking and she told me that when she was recording the album, she was trying to become a better musician and she felt like she wasn't practicing and then recording her songs. She was recording herself trying to play the songs. And it was really cool to me to hear her articulate that process in that way. It's very similar to a lot of other types of music that I listen to, like, um, a band like the Raincoats, for example, who are one of my favorite bands. Um, and I never, ever would think that you could draw a line between a band like the Raincoats and Fiona Apple. That's not something I would ever predict, even though Fiona Apple is my favorite artist of all time. So that that was shocking to me to, to learn that she was gravitating towards a, an art making process like that. There, there was one day when um, she texted me and said, I think I found your Tumblr. And I was shocked. She spends a lot of time on Tumblr um, looking at art and animals and an assortment of like mental health communities. She had found this musician she was interested in and she was searching the tags and she found something that I had posted just a few days before about that musician. And she was like, Milford Grave sent me to you. She had been searching the tags for this like cult jazz icon, Milford Graves, which was shocking to me because I love Milford Graves and just, I wouldn't have expected Fiona Apple to <laughs> find my Tumblr by searching the Milford Graves tags on, on Tumblr. But it was interesting to me because Milford Graves is an artist who has spent like decades using cardiovascular equipment to study and record his own heartbeat. And so for Fiona to gravitate towards a musician like that made so much sense to me since she, so much of her music is about her attunement to her own heart and her emotions and that level of sensitivity that is almost like unknown to most people. I thought that was really cool and interesting. And also I discovered Fiona Apple's music on LiveJournal. So to in turn be found by Fiona Apple on Tumblr was very like brain exploding moment to me. <laughs> There's one more thing I want to ask you about. One of the most striking moments on the album is that coda to I Want You to Love Me. 
where it dissolves from this really lovely and relatively straightforward song into a really chaotic and avant-garde passage where Fiona's making all of these kind of bizarre but still beautiful nonverbal sounds with her voice. It kind of feels like she's somehow articulating something that she isn't quite able to get across in words. And I know that you had a really interesting conversation about that part in particular. When I interviewed Fiona in June, that was definitely at the top of my list of things I wanted to ask her about. That's another moment on the album where I will never forget the experience and feeling of hearing that for the first time. I was so shocked in the best way. It reminded me of someone like Meredith Monk, like extended vocal technique from um, the 60s or 70s and makes total sense and yet was still really shocking. And so I wanted to ask her about that. Her kind of explanation of where it was coming from was so interesting because she told me that in that song, she knew towards the end, she wanted her piano playing to speed up and that she eventually, they just started to unravel and started to fall apart. And that the um, kind of high-pitched Yelp (laughs) avant-garde vocal contortion was a response to a mistake. She actually called it a musical extension of I fucked up. Then she also told me that she had realized the more she thought of it, that she actually felt that she was subconsciously doing an impression of her sister's dead dog, Ada, because her sister's dog would make that similar high-pitched yelping sound whenever she had been apart from Fiona's sister, Amber, and then reunited with her. So Fiona said maybe subconsciously it was her way of saying, I'm so excited to see you, you're back, I love you. Well, Jen and Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing it. If you want to hear the songs we talked about in this episode, check out our Spotify playlist. It's called The Pitchfork Review, Music from the Podcast. The Pitchfork Review is hosted by me, Pooja Patel. Thanks to Jen Pelly and Ryan Domble for coming on the show. You can follow Jen on Twitter at... Jen Pelly, and you can follow Ryan at Ryan Domble. You can follow me on Twitter at Sonari. You can follow Pitchfork on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pitchfork. This episode was produced by Zachariah Hughes and Rufara Mazarura. It was edited by Andy Cush and Zachariah Hughes. Will Miller fact-checked the episode. Our original music is by Andrew Eben of Basement Crafts. This episode was mixed and scored by Mark Bush and Rafara Mazarura. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. You can also send an email to podcast at pitchfork.com with any feedback. Thanks for listening and see you next week. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. 
who her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>